Our passage this morning is uh, from the Gospel of John. John chapter 13 is going to be the text, verses uh, 1 through 17. If you want to grab one of the uh, chair Bibles, it's uh, on page 900. Uh, John is the fourth gospel uh, in, uh, in the fourth book, in the, in the fourth gospel that's listed in the New Testament. While you're turning to that, I do want to say a word of thanks to uh, small group leaders two times a year, one time in the winter and then also a longer time in the, in the fall. Our, we do small group ministries, and I know some of you are in small groups, and that can't happen without people who host a small group or, or a facilitator or, or someone who's leading. And, and then we've got some people that work in the background that help set it up for us, people like uh, Teresa on our staff, Jack Key, and a couple others that have been very helpful with this. Uh, and, and you also know the pattern that whenever we're in a small group season, um, whoever is preaching, they preach whatever the text is of that week. And so this is the last uh, text for us in our, our winter small group, and it's uh, John chapter 13. Familiar passage, I would imagine, for many. So let's look at it, and, uh, and this, will, this will be what guides us uh, this morning. Now before the feast of, of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed the disciples' feet and put, all, put, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Oh God, as we continue in the spirit of worship where we, uh, everything that has happened thus far, and even now, the reading and the hearing of the passage, what we pray God is, for your gospel to come and to, to work its work inside of us. Um, often it's called a kingdom, a, a kingdom that is created uh, by your word. So we pray for that, O oh God, today. Uh, if it is a first work in the life of a person or if it's a, continua a, a continuation of, O oh God, what we care and what we desire is that your work would have its full effect uh, in, into our lives, into our families, uh, into this community, and, and into the world, and, and use us in that endeavor. And we pray this now in your name. Amen. Of all the passages that we've uh, at least preached on over this small group season, 
Um, this is the one that I could not wait to preach on. This, this actually, John chapter 13, uh, is for me my favorite chapter in the Bible. Uh, and it wasn't always that way, but for the last 14 years, it's been something that I have uh, read probably 100 or 200 times. I find myself reading this passage uh, as part of my personal devotion, regardless of what, what part of the Bible I'm studying or reading. I always seem to find my way back to, to John chapter 13. And I would imagine this is not the first time you've either read this passage or heard this passage. Uh, if you've been around the church, particularly uh, in Holy Week, you might have heard this passage or at least focused in on this passage, particularly as it relates to what we call Monday Thursday. Monday Thursday is the Thursday of Holy Week, and, and, and that uh, Monday comes from the Latin word that we, de- that we actually derive from, uh, the word mandate. I mean, it's a, it, we have a mandate in the passage that we are to go and do likewise. Uh, that, that's verse 15. And so mo- often when you, your, your introduction to this passage probably has to do with some level of foot washing, or at least the story of foot washing. In some denominations, foot washing is actually a sacrament. Uh, that they devote this, uh, and they will participate in the act of foot washing, uh, uh, at least at Holy Week. And so for many people, this is a passage that is very familiar uh, to them. But as, as important as verse 15 is, and that's where you get this mandate. I've given you an example. Uh, it's really a command. You, you are to go and do what, what I have done, and, and as impactful And as important as that passage is, to me, the real goodness of the passage is not only in verse 15. It's actually in the first three verses. Because in the first three verses, we we get John does something for us, and it's really a gift. We, We sort of are able to pull back the mind of Christ and see what's going on on his insides. And what I want to do is I just want to highlight a few of these just to see the magnitude of, uh, of what, what's going on on the inside of, of Jesus. And the first thing is that Jesus, what John tells us is that Jesus knew that his hour had come and he was about to die. I mean, just think about that for a moment. That, that is a very, very sobering thought to know that your end is near. One of the things that... Um, that pastors treat as as part of the sacred trust that exists between pastors and people is that often we are invited in to these really holy and and sacred moments in in the life of a person. And and I I can tell you, when people know that their hour, I mean, that their, their time is coming to an end, it is incredibly sobering to know that. I mean, I've walked with, I don't know how many people down this road where they know that their time is fleeting and and that death is is very imminent. It it is not a normal day for people when they know this. And it definitely wasn't a normal day for Jesus. Because most people, what they will do is when they know that their time is coming to an end, they'll either push against it, they'll fight or resist, and and there's some who, who almost rebel against it. And then there are others that they have this calmness and just an acceptance. I think Jesus would be the latter. But he knew that his hour had come and that he was about to die. Not not only that, 
What John tells us is we get into this insight into what's going on on the insides of Jesus. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the fullest. That, that verb, love, that's in the passage, it's in what we call the perfect tense. And, and in the Greek, there were different past tense verbs. There's the aorist tense, which is just a past completed action. It's like I hit the ball. Once I hit the ball, the action is over and it's completed and, and it's gone. But the perfect tense is, is different. It's a past action, but it has this continuing effect that goes on and on and on. It never stops. And so when, it, it, when, when John mentioned that Jesus loved his own, and, and he loved them to the fullest. The idea is that Jesus loved them, but he continues to love on and on and on. It never ends. Actually, if we were to fast forward a, a few chapters into John 17, where, where we get insight into this prayer that Jesus is praying, he actually prayed, Lord, for all these people that have been given to me, he sees them as if they're gifts that are given from God. And so you get insight into this motivation of Jesus that, that everything that Jesus did, it, it, is all, it all stems from this motivation of love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the fullest. He continues to love them on and on and on. We also know something else about Jesus, that he was fully aware that he was about to be betrayed. Now think about that for a minute. All right, so, you know, we know that his hour's coming to an end. He, he's aware of that. We know that he loved every, every last one of them, even the one that is about to betray him. That is mind-boggling to, to me. Uh, I can tell you that if I was about to die and I was so grateful for the people that were given to me and I see them as a gift and I've loved them to the fullest, and then one of those, one of those guys that I've loved to the fullest, he's about to leave dinner and to go and betray me. And by the way, John also tells us that Jesus knew that all authority was given to him, meaning that Jesus was the most powerful person in the room. All right, so we know what he did. He got up and he washed someone else's feet. I can tell you I would not be washing feet. Instead of grabbing a towel and a basin, I would have grabbed a sword particularly when it came to Judas. But that's not what Jesus did. He knew that his hour had come, that he was about to die. Having loved his own, he loved, them to, he loved them to the fullest, even the one that was about to betray him. And then the last thing we know about Jesus is that he came from God and he was returning to God. You know, that alone, we could preach on this for a number of Sundays. I mean, think about what it would be like for you to think about your past and know that all that is literally in the past and it's just gone. And then all the anxiety that we have about the future, that's in its proper place. What if both of those were taken care of? And so all you had to focus in on is just this moment right now. I, you know, that alone we could preach on. But that's, the, that's what's going on inside of the mind of Christ. He, uh, he knew that his hour was, was about up. 
Having loved his own, he loved them to, to the fullest. He fully aware of what was taking place. Someone was about to betray him. He knew that he was the most powerful person in the room and that he came from God and re- was returning to God. All this, Jesus was aware of. And out of this, motivated by love, he then acted. And he washed the disciples' feet. You know, most of us, again, when we read this passage, what we think on, or at least what, we've, what we are drawn to, is verse 15. It's what someone does that's most important, right? How somebody acts, the actions are the ones that count. I mean, we define ourselves by our actions. We definitely define another person by their actions. And yet, John spent so much time talking about what was on the inside of Jesus more so than actually what Jesus did. I mean, there is a mandate in the passage. There is a command. We're to go and to do likewise. We're to go and, and, and symbolically or, or sometimes even literally wash another person's feet. The idea is that you go and be a servant. And we focus on what that means, the actions that we are to commit or that we are to do. But maybe I would argue Before we go and do anything, perform any action, I would argue what's most important is to look at our motivations. That's the real event here. Because what I've learned about myself and what I've learned in just observing other people, a person really can't live a life as a servant without having the right motivation. Because living as a servant, the average person, is not sustainable. It's too difficult. And if it was only about the actions, then why is it that we struggle when it comes to being a servant? We must cultivate our heart as much as we cultivate our hands. There has to be some consistency with both. And before the disciples were foot washers, they were receivers. Their feet were washed. You know, to be a receiver, if you think about receiving... That is so humbling, sobering, sometimes even embarrassing. Because just to be a receiver, often what we are is we're reduced. No pride. No sense of self where we want to put up and and define ourselves by what we do. If If you're first a receiver, then that's all you are. You're just a receiver. I read this passage and the person I identify with, it's not Jesus. It's Peter. You're not going to wash my feet. (laughs) No. I understand the protest. Because to be loved this way by Jesus strips away all pride. And you're just a receiver. 
You're the object of another person's love. Actually, uh, I mean, I understand the protest. Lord, don't love me this much because that makes me really uncomfortable. Let's work out a deal where maybe I'm loving a little bit and you're loving a little bit, but we've got something where we can keep some distance because to be fully loved to the fullest and to receive on that level, well, frankly, that's uncomfortable. To be loved by another person this way. This type of love, this, uh, this removes the barriers between people. It doesn't, doesn't tear them down. What it does, it, it, it removes them and then establishes something better. I, I don't know if you've ever either participated in this spiritual discipline or, or aware. There, there's actually a, a spiritual discipline inside the church that, that we call the, the discipline of indirection. And what we mean by that is that if, if you want to focus on something in your life over here, what we think is that we have to put all of our attention and energy over here because that's what we want to change. That's, that's not the way indirection works. Actually, the way if you want to change something over here, it, it sounds like you do the opposite, but it really does work. For instance, let me, let me, if you want to change and, and learn the value of your words, you don't do it by speaking more. You do it by embracing silence. It's the opposite. If you have a life where your calendar is uh, where you're overcommitted, and that's probably about 100% of the people in this room, where you're overcommitted. And so what we do is we look at our calendar and we think, oh, I've got all these things, so I need to, I need to put more energy into my calendar. No, that's not what you do. You do the opposite. You embrace Sabbath, which is pulling back from but what that does, that actually teaches a boundary. If you have a relationship that you want to change, what we think is, well, I've got to go and work on that person. No, you do the opposite. You work on yourself. And by working on yourself, it actually does change the relationship. So the desired end, that does happen. It's just indirection. And so there's this discipline that exists inside the church. So if we want to take on this mandate, this command where we think, okay, we've got to go and love other people. We've got to be a servant. And so we create this list of actions that we're going to do because our actions matter, right? Yeah, they do. But the first work, it's not the actions. The first work in direction, it's your motivation. Before it's the hands it's the heart. Because if we take on the mantle of living as a follower of Christ, and that is a lifetime and a lifestyle, inside the kingdom, New Testament, that, that kingdom, it, it, inside of God's economy and reality, there actually is an ethical code. There's a moral code. It's just too hard to do it without motivation. And so we think it's about, all right, when I leave here, Shane, I, you know, I, I get the sermon. we got to go and be servants. I'm, I'm going to serve up. No. That'll last about a week. 
It has first to do with the heart, the motivation behind it. I mean, why did John go to great length for three verses? It's a third of the passage where we get the insight into what's going on inside the mind of Christ. That is Jesus long before he washes their feet. This idea of go and do likewise, it's not just going and washing the feet. Go and do likewise means you cultivate the heart. Both of them, both of them is what God desires. So in direction, before we do anything for Christ, we have to learn to be a receiver, which has nothing to do with the other person. It has everything to do with you. To use different language, basking in the love of God. In my family, I'm the only one that when we go to the beach, I'm good for about two hours. After that, I'm going back to the house, going back to the condo, whatever it may be. I can, I can stay in the sun for about two hours. And that's only if I've got an umbrella and I've got like 10 towels around me and, you know, maybe so I can take a nap. But that's really about it. Everybody else in my family, man, they're pros at basking. They can just sit there like a solar panel and just soak up every ounce of the sun. But that's the, that's the image. Basking in the love of God. Incidentally, when's the last time in your life that you de devoted time in space for motivation? The uh, time and space to try to get your head around how much you really are loved by God. C.S. Lewis, I know some of you will stay in this room afterwards because we're, we're doing uh, screw tape letters. C.S. Lewis, Lewis also said, God will look to every soul like his first love because it actually is his first love. It's the love of God that constrains us. It's the love of God that compels us. And it's the love of God that frees us. And when we embrace that and bask in it, what, that motivation, your heart actually, it, it, it's reformed. It's changed. And you actually understand this idea of coming from God and going to God and, and, and past melts away and future just sits in its proper place. And, and, and people who, who live and, and bask in this love of God, they're, every moment they're aware of the magnitude of the moment. It's where their heart and hands there are aligned. And so they, they live as a servant long term. We don't start with verse 15. You start with these verses. One, two, and three. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Julian of Norwich. And I would imagine if you aren't, if you're not one of those persons that uh, sort of geek up around the history of the church, you, you probably don't know. Unfortunately, I'm dysfunctional that way. 
Julian of Norwich, she lived in the late 1300s, about 1380. At age 30, she became gravely ill. And she was reduced, she was bedridden for a long time, and, and then, then actually became her deathbed. And she, she was confined to her bed for months on months and months. And, and, and she thought she was going to die. Other people around her thought she was going to die. And, and each day she thought, all right, this is the last day. I mean, I'm writhing in so much, so much pain. And so the only thing that was before her, above her in her room, there was a crucifix of Christ. And so every day, writhing in pain, she just would focus in on the cross, focus in on the crucifix. And, and there was a time where she, she lost her sight, and then her, her breathing became very labored. It's, they didn't know it this, but what we probably call the death rattle. Right? If you've ever been in the room, maybe at hospice or someone, when they're getting to the end and the breathing becomes so labored because of the fluid, it sounds like it's rattling. That, that was her life. She laid there thinking this is going to be the day. And then one day, all this pain was taken away. And she felt at just at perfect ease. She actually thought she died or either was in the act of the literal act of dying. She had this image, this image of Jesus. And in that moment, she said that everything, everything just was stripped away. And what she knew more than anything else was how deeply loved she was. And she was undone because she engaged with Jesus and said, there's no way that I can be this loved because you, you, are, you have no idea of my shortcomings. You have no idea of my sinfulness. There's no way that someone can love me that much. And so she asked Jesus, said, how is this even possible? How, how is it that God can love me this much? And this is the response she got. All shall be well. And she said that God then showed her the reason for everything that God did and everything that God's, God does. And it was all based in love. And so this is what she wrote. I was taught that love was our Lord's meaning, and quite clearly in this and in all that before God made us, he loved us which was never less nor ever shall be less. And in this love, he has done all this work, and in this love, he has made all things profitable, good for us. You don't have to have a near-death experience to know that you've been loved this much by God. And if we take on this mantle of being a servant, it's not only the actions. The actions are just the outward manifest manifestations of the inward motivation. So we work on our heart. When we work on our heart, our hands take care of themselves. That's the lesson from John 13. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the fullest. 
What did that love look like? Being a servant. Go and be, go and do likewise. Lord, we read this passage and it's, it's really just dripping with so much. And as much as we want to move straight to verse 15 and, and go and do, we're, we're doers, oh God. And we don't discount that. We want to be doers of the word. That, that's a part of who we are. But as we think about doing, if, we, if everything that we do, if there's not a motivation and a heart behind it, Lord, we're going to fall on our face. Good intentions are just good intentions. At some point, it requires a heart that is changed, a heart that is transformed. And real transformation begins with your love. So strip away the barriers that we put up, our sense of pride, an overinflated sense of self, or maybe even an underinflated, a deflation of God. Create in us a new and a right and a steadfast heart. Oh God, this is our prayer, and we pray it now in the name of Christ. Amen.